0: It's good to see you this morning. If you're new around here, my name's Dave. I'm also one of the pastors. Um, And before we get into our message today, which, by the way, is in the book of Ruth, we're starting a new series this morning on the book of Ruth. It's going to be just a great five-week journey. And so if you have a Bible today, you can grab that and pull it out, turn to the book of Ruth. We're going to have passages on the screen, but it's always, I think it's just good to have the Bible in your hands. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Ruth, if you get to the Kings or the Samuels, you've gone too far, right? So, or Samuels, Kings, however that works. So, uh, Ruth chapter 1 is where it will be. As you flip, let me just say, uh, if you weren't here with us last week, uh, we were just blessed by Pastor Nick, who preached his very first sermon here at Cedar Mill. Yeah. Preach it, white boy. Where are you? There you are, white boy. Good. Good. Um, No, it's actually really a great morning, and you know, it's one of those times for me where I think every person has this moment where you realize that the next generation is going to take the church farther than your generation. And I really, up until uh, last week, considered Nick and I to be the same generation, but we were out with them um, for dinner, and uh, Nick and Allison and my wife Amy and I and some other couples, and at one point we were talking, it's like we're all this one big group, and I was like, yeah, here we are together hanging out one big group and I was just feeling really cool and young and then all of a sudden at one point Nick said like yeah Dave back in your generation and I was like whatever Nick your generation no that's cool anyway Nick thank you you blessed us last week I was personally blessed by your message and your words and we look forward to having you again soon so with that Ruth here we go I have to tell you as I have jumped back into the book of Ruth I have been reminded of how much I love this book. This is an amazing story with so many layers of truth and challenge and encouragement for us. It is actually a story about some people who lived on the other side of the world over 3,000 years ago, and yet, in a way that only God could make it happen, it is also a story about us. And I believe this, if we let ourselves into this story, if we open ourselves up to the Word of God and, into, and open ourselves up to this story, over the next weeks, we will find ourselves in this story and this story will transform our hearts and minds and lives and souls. And so let's commit together to taking this journey with the scriptures in the book of Ruth. It begins like this. In the days when the judges ruled in the days when the judges ruled and the judges by the way were leaders that emerged to guide the nation of Israel for about two hundred years when Israel had no king when there was no official leader the judges would emerge one by one to provide leadership for the nation of Israel it was a time period that is for the most part marked with darkness and wickedness and rebellious turbulent unfaithfulness this is a time in history this is a time for the nation of Israel when over and over and over and over again God's people would continue to turn away from him and reject him as Lord and King and leader this was a not good dark time in the days when the judges ruled in this time when people were constantly and consistently walking away from following the living God There was hope in this one little family, in this one little group, in just a couple of faithful women in the days when the judges ruled. You see, as this story opens with these words, we are instantly given the setting. And it's a setting of adversity and sorrow and struggle. It's a time period filled with moral depravity and faithlessness. If this were a movie, the opening scene would be filmed in black and white, and there would be kind of minor key music playing in the background, kind of oppressively setting the scene. That's the setting of our story today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. This whole first section is really just about names and places, and it sets the stage for the plot of the story. It sets the entire rest of the book up. First of all, we have a family living in the land. And the land is... Israel that's the promised land it's the land that God gave to his people it's the land described throughout the Old Testament as flowing with milk and a honey this land is a blessing from the Lord and if you remember right for many 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 years these were a people who had no land the nation of Israel for decades wandered around the desert and the wilderness without a home and then finally finally they came to this land they came to Israel God's country this is like people from California who have finally come to Oregon where there's trees and water and beauty This is a big moment of relief here's the point this land is a big deal still a big deal today if you read the news but it was a big deal back then this land symbolized and was part of these people's relationship with God but not only that we're told that this family lives in a specific region of Israel Judah they live in the state or the region of Judah the name Judah is simply a word that means praise praise. The idea being that the people who live there live lives of praise to God. We're also told this family is from the town of Bethlehem, famous for the for the birth of Jesus. But Bethlehem is also just a word that means house of bread. Bethlehem, house of bread. In other words, a place where God provides. And so, right off the bat, we see that as the author writes this story, there is some wonderful irony here. Because we're told there is a famine in the house of bread. They can't find any food at the bakery. Hmm, weird. Something is not right. Something is amiss. And as we meet the family, we begin to discover what it is. Let's start with the two kids the boys, Maklon and Kilion. These are some really cool kind of Star Trek-ish Klingon names, don't you think? Can I get an amen from the Trekkies out there? Perhaps, I just want to suggest that if you, good job Timmy, if, uh, if you are a young family you should consider naming your sons, if you have sons, Maklon or Kilion. No! Let me give you just a very straightforward piece of pastoral advice this morning. Do not name your kids Maclon or Kilion. Maclon means sick. Kilion means dying. This is like saying, hey, meet my boys. This one's measles. And the little guy over there, that's swine flu. They're good kids, you know. Friends, this is what your English teacher back in the day referred to as foreshadowing and it's not real subtle. Can anyone guess what's gonna happen to these two children? Yeah, measles and swine flu are in big trouble, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. For now, let's move on to the parents. First, there's Naomi. Naomi is sort of the the heroine of the story. She is the star of the show at some point here. We're gonna talk more about her later, but for now, you just need to know this. Her name means pleasant or lovely. This is pleasant, meet pleasant or lovely. This is someone who is very nice to be around. This is a person with a good, solid, Mary Poppins sort of disposition. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Not even struggles or difficulties can bring down Naomi. Super Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, even though the sound of it is something like, you know, she's just a happy-go-lucky, make the best of every situation kind of lady. This is one positive person. We will see how long that lasts. But the star of this opening section, the guy sort of running the show here at the beginning, is Dad, Elimelech. And Elimelech, by the way, also has his own song. Um, you all probably know what song Elimelech has, right? Do you know his song? Yeah, Elimelech, 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 he- 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 See, if you watch The Office, I'm Andrew Bernard right now. If you don't, it's just awkward in here. But let me tell you this we're not just doing Ruth here, friends. Today, we're actually doing Ruth the Musical. It's not Hamilton, but it's pretty good. No, actually, just as a side note, Ruth is actually written as sort of like a five-act play. And so it is sort of a play vibe. We're going to make it a musical every now and then. Next week, you know, uh, maybe uh, Ted Burnick will come up and dance in the background. That'd be fun. Ted, would you do that? I'd love that for next week. Look forward to that. We'll work on it this week. No, we're not going to do that. But we have Elimelech. Uh, His name means my God is king my God is in charge my God is in control my God can do anything my God is king and this is where we see just a little bit more irony in this story because Elimelech, mister my God is king takes his family from the house of bread from the place where God provides from God's country and he moves them to Moab Now, if we're going to understand the book of Ruth, we must understand how Israel felt about the Moabites. Because the Moabites were nothing less than an incestuous, depraved, inbred, sexually immoral people. They worshiped the false god Chemosh and that was worship that often involved detestable acts like infant sacrifice. The story of the Moabites actually begins back in Genesis 19, and here's how the story goes. If you remember it, Lot is uh, living with his family in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and because God decides he's going to judge those cities for the rampant sin happening in their midst, Lot is told to flee, and so he and his family flees the cities just as they're destroyed. They're destroyed kind of right in the wake of them leaving. Lot has with him his wife and his two daughters, but Lot's two daughters, they in this moment lack faith and they do not trust that God will take care of them. They do not trust that God will provide children for them because they look around and there's something they don't see any husbands all the husbands they know of burned up in the cities and so they decide these two daughters to take matters into their own hands they decide they're going to take control kind of opposite of my God is king my God is in control And so what they do is they get dad drunk and then they sleep with dad and one of the sons that comes out of this incestuous relationship is named Moab. That is the beginning of the nation of Moab. That's the beginning of the Moabites, famous for their incestuous sin, famous for not trusting God and taking matters into their own hands. And so now back to Elimelech. Mr. My God is king. My God has got it under control. Elimelech hits one little rough spot in God's country, in the house of praise and bread, one little bump in the road, And he bails. He's off now, walking away from God's land to the land of, I don't really trust God, and I must take matters into my own hands. Elimelech is off to Moab. And where he's going, friends, actually tells the story of where he is spiritually. Of who's really king in his life. Of where Elimelech's hope truly is. You see, Elimelech is more driven by earthly security than spiritual health. I'll say that again. Elimelech is more driven by earthly security than spiritual health. For him, prosperity outweighs religious conviction. My God is king. That's just talk. That's just a name. When it comes right down to it, do you know who's king of Elimelech's life? Elimelech. And here's where we have to pause and ask the question. Is there any Elimelech in us? Is God really king? Or is that just talk? When times get tough, when things aren't going the way we want them to go... Is God on the throne? Do we hold fast to his plan and his ways? Or do we bail? Do we go our own way? Friends, where are you tempted to retreat to when there is a famine in your land? When do you actually act like Elimelech? Elimelech, Naomi, Maklon, and Kilian, they went to Moab and lived there. Verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Three verses, and the guy's dead. More irony, friends, to this story. Because Elimelech went to Moab to find prosperity and to escape the famine and to avoid death. And the first thing that happens to him is that he dies. Simple lesson. If God is not sitting on the throne of your life, if God is not king, you will experience death. That is one promise you can take to the bank. Because here's the deal. Sin sin, which is kind of a fancy Bible word that we sometimes get confused about, is really just simply departing from God's plan, leaving God's path for your life and going your own way. You say sin is just saying, God, I don't want to do it your way. I'll do it my way. God, I won't do it your way. I'm following the world's way. That is sin. And here's what the scriptures say. Sin always leads to death. Every single time every single place in your life and world where there is sin where you are off God's path and plan for your life you will experience death sometimes that death will be physical but more often than not that death will take another form sin always leads to death death of relationships death of joy death of peace death of confidence and humility death of security and satisfaction you see, one of the questions Elimelech forces us to ask is this. Is it worth it? Just ask yourself that question this morning, friends. Is it worth it? Is controlling my own life and stubbornly saying, God, I'm doing it my way and I will follow my own path in spite of what you say, is it worth it? Is all the pain and loss and emptiness and death that will follow worth it, worth having your hands on the will. Worth that momentary sense of control. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. See, what Elimelech forgot was that his decisions would not just impact him. What Elimelech forgot was that his decisions would impact the other people in his life. What Elimelech forgot is that his decisions would impact his own children. And his sons are now married to pagan women who do not love the Lord. Why? Because Elimelech forgot that every single decision he made would not just impact him, but would impact his family. Friends, I have to remind you of that today. This is a very painful reality, but the story in so many good ways and bad shows us time and time again how significantly our decisions impact those around us. And later in this story, we're going to see some really good God-following decisions that impact people in amazing ways, but right here we see some Elimelech decisions that have already had negative impact for his family. Friends, do you know that about yourself? Do you know real clearly that you do not live in a bubble, that every decision you make publicly or privately is impacting and shaping the people around you, your family, your friends, your kids, your church community? Even the very little decisions of your life. Should I pray? Should I serve? Should I give? Should I conduct my business like this or like that? How do I speak about others when they're not around? How do I react in difficult situations when life doesn't go my way? When I'm threatened unfairly? When my health begins to fail? Decisions like Do I make time for God? Do I live a life in deep, authentic, transparent relationship with other people who love God and want to follow Him? Do I share Christ with people who don't know Him? Do I care about and serve those less fortunate than me? Every single one of those decisions will not just impact you, but will impact the people around you. We live in community whether we want to or not. You do not live your life in a bubble. Your answers, your life, your decisions will impact the lives of those around you. Elimleks does as well. After they had lived there about 10 years, one whole decade in Moab, both Malon and Kilion also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. You see, the focus of this story now shifts to Naomi. And friends, this is a brutal time for her. She has lost everything, and I mean everything. You see, for a woman in this society, All of your status and all of your security was wrapped up in your husband and your sons. In this culture, they were the ones who would have looked after you and taken care of you and given your life meaning and significance and purpose. She has not only lost her loved ones. We can all sort of on some level relate to how painful it would be to lose your family. But friends, she has lost something so much more because her world is not the same as our world. In her world, this patriarchal world in which she lives, she has lost social standing, financial security, the ability to have a life of satisfaction and meaning and purpose in any way. She is now at the very bottom of the barrel. Now she's not only alone, but she's in a foreign land. She's a foreigner. She's an immigrant away from her people, and away from her God but then the story begins to shift in verse 6 when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them she and her daughters in law prepared to return home from there with her two daughters in law she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah friends here is the greatest thing about God And this is a theme that runs through the book of Ruth. Even when, even when, just remember those words, even when, even when we've wandered off to Moab, even when we've gone our own way, even when we've decided we're going to be in control of our own lives, even when we've wandered off to Moab, God is always calling us home to his presence. God is always inviting his people to come and live a life of praise once more. God is always inviting us, return, come back to the house of bread. I am here, I am waiting, and I will provide for you. Naomi is going home. What about you? Are you in Moab today? Are you here this morning in church, but the truth is you're actually living a life apart from God? Have you made a decision for whatever reason to live your own life, your own way? And if so, how is that going for you? Where will that road take you? Where will it end up? Let me ask it this way, friends. Maybe this is a better way of asking it for us. What parts of your life are in Moab these days? See, maybe you're here this morning and you're not living in Moab, but you know what? You commute there on occasion or maybe even on a regular basis. Maybe most of your life, your main home, home number one is in Judah, but every now and then you take a little road trip to Moab. Friends, God is saying, come home. I want to talk first of all about that closing statement that naomi makes it is more bitter for me than for you because the lord's hand has turned against me you see friends just when we thought naomi was embracing hope just when we we thought that she was turning her life around we get the real picture and we can see from these verses from this section that naomi is actually not going home to live she's going home to die Anyone who would look at her situation, everyone who reads this story in the first first century with all logic and reason would say this This lady's story is over. She is finished. There's nothing that God can or will do with her from this point forward. But, friends, one of the questions this story begs us to ask is this Is it true? Is it true? Is Naomi's statement in verse 13 true? Has she in fact lost Yahweh's love? Did her significance truly die when her husband and sons died back in Moab? Or, or is there a greater and deeper truth at work here that God's purpose for her is indestructible? That nothing in this world can kill or take that away from her you see friends in this section Naomi refers to a Jewish law in Deuteronomy 25 we're going to get into it more in the coming weeks but the shorthand version is this in the Jewish world in this kind of infused into this patriarchal culture where women had no power or privilege or voice or say when a Jewish woman was widowed and she was vulnerable without any children the law said she was to marry one of her deceased husband's brothers and it's kind of a weird law for us and again we'll get into it later Um, but since both of Ruth and Orpah's husband's brothers are dead since there are no brothers left it means that the chances of these two widowed girls getting remarried and finding hope in this patriarchal culture in a small Jewish town like Bethlehem was very slim slim to none And so Naomi starts to think about this as they're traveling back and she realizes that by coming with her, these two girls are in a sense sealing their fate of never being married again, sealing their fate of living on the margins and in poverty for the the rest of their lives. And so she says to them, don't come with me, go home, get your life back together, start over, go back to Moab. Moab. And in case you missed it, this is actually just a repeat of scene one. (laughs) These two young women now have the same choice to make that Elimelech had, right? They can go to the land of praise and the house of bread, a place where God is lifted up, and they can trust amidst the odds that he will provide for them. Or, Or they can take matters into their own hands and go back to Moab. And now they must choose. Verse 14. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Did I tell you that names mean a lot in this story? Orpah is a name that means back of the neck or to turn your back on someone and friends in this story what the author is telling us is that Orpa doesn't just turn her back on Naomi she turns her back on God notice in verse 15 Naomi says your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods Orpah like Elimelech chooses Moab over Israel she chooses Chemosh over Yahweh her true loyalty when push comes to shove Is to the path that leads to the most earthly security and comfort see when that was God it was great but as soon as God got too hard for Orpah she turned her back look said Naomi your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods go back with her look at the odds count the cost understand the road ahead if you continue to come with me Go back with your sister. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Wherever you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her she stopped urging her you see in this section we now see the determined devotion of Ruth because friends I'm not sure if you quite understand the magnitude of this moment but this is a bold move for a young Moabite woman do the Jews like Moabites no Will Ruth be warmly welcomed in Bethlehem? Probably not. This is a move, friends, into enemy territory. This, I would argue, is faith in action. This is not just talking about trusting God and putting yourself in His hands. This is actually living it. This is doing it in the most extreme way. When was the last time you really trusted God? When was the last time you didn't just talk about God or theorize about God or learn about God? When was the last time you actually put your trust in the living God like Ruth does here? He's often friends, I think in our world as Christ followers, we talk a lot about faith, but you know what real faith is? Faith is, I will trust you no matter what. I'll trust you when it's hard. I'll trust you when it doesn't make sense. I'll trust you when the odds are stacked so high against me that it makes no logical sense at all. That's Ruth in this moment. When was the last time you exercised faith? said, okay, God, I will do it no matter what. I'll move, I'll give, I'll go, I'll serve, I'll step, I'll trust. I will put myself in a place where I am no longer comfortable and where I cannot pull it off in my own strength. That is the kind of faith the Bible time and time and time again calls God followers to. Because when we trust him that way, he proves himself faithful in ways that we can only imagine if we will never go there with him. That's Ruth. She's just out there on a limb, radically and fully putting her hand, her life in the hands of God. Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I just have to picture this scene friends because if you've ever been to a small town you know what it's like everybody knows everyone else everybody knows everyone else's kids and grandkids and great grandkids and like your business is everyone's business and news travels fast through this small town that Naomi has come home and so everyone gathers to see her everyone gathers to welcome her and they say as they see her walking into town Can this be Naomi? Which again means what? Pleasant, lovely, Mary Poppins sort of lady, right? Can this be pleasant, lovely lady? In other words, she don't look too pleasant. That doesn't look lovely at all. Life's taking a toll toll on that girl. This is like going back to your 20-year high school. Like, you've had this moment, right? Like, did you see what happened to Lisa? Like... Bill is not aging well. Like, you know, this is that moment times a thousand. Life's taking a toll on this girl, and everyone can see it because it's written all over her face. And Naomi just owns it, right? She's like, nope, you're right. Nope, I'm not pleasant. In fact, just call me Mara, a name that means bitter. Just call me bitter. You see, she's gone from the lady with the pleasant disposition. She's gone from Mary Poppins to bitter old hag. When I left I was full. I went away full. I didn't even realize how blessed I was. Before we walked away from God and went to Moab, our lives were full. And now, now I'm coming back and I have nothing. I'm destroyed and I'm devastated and I'm broken. I'm a bitter old woman. The Lord has brought me back empty. You want the cold hard truth, town? That's me and that's where I'm at. You see, one question the book of Ruth boldly raises for us, boldly raised for the original readers of this story, is this. What is the value of a woman? And in the patriarchal world of the ancient Near East, they would have answered that question without hesitation. What is the value of a woman? Oh, that one's easy, that's simple. Two things, is she married, and does she have sons is she married and does she have sons and you see Naomi's scorecard was at one time full at one point in time her value was extremely high because she did have a husband and she had two sons she was full she had status she had acceptance she was valuable and important but now now they're gone her husband's dead and her sons are gone now she's empty and suddenly her value in this world has significantly decreased. When the people of Bethlehem look at Naomi, friends, even when Naomi looks at herself because she's bought into this lie as well, all they see is a woman who was once significant and valuable but is now irrelevant and worthless. But the question, friends, the question God is begging us to answer is this, how does God see her? is she truly worthless does she no longer have value in the middle of a, of a society that assigns and attaches value to certain things and certain people anyone here live in a society like that in the middle of a society that assigns and attaches value to certain things and certain people how does God assign value When society gets it wrong when the world says you only matter when this how does God assign value what does the living God of heaven and earth say well listen to how this first chapter finishes up so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning and if you again imagine Ruth as a play, the curtains close right there, right? Intermission time, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. You see friends, here's what the author's telling us. It's a new chapter. It's time for a new day, a new beginning. That's what the barley harvest is all about. It's about God turning famine into feasts. It's about God taking a bitter heart and making it pleasant again. It's about the kind of redemption that that only the Lord can pull off. It's about God saying, even when the world looks at you and says, you have no value. He says, I have greater and grander purpose for you because you are worth something. Your value and your significance in this world does not come from them. It comes from me. Listen to me, friends, because this is so essential for us if we are going to live as followers of the living God in this fallen and broken world. Even when this world has written you off, even when this world has written them off, whoever the them is for you, even when people say you don't have value because you're not smart enough or pretty enough or successful enough or popular enough or cool enough or wealthy enough or religious enough or you don't live in the right neighborhood or drive the right car or have the right-looking family, Even when this world looks at you and says, you can't do it because. You can't do it because you're just a girl. You can't do it because you're too short. You can't do it because you're just a nerd. You can't do it because because you come from the wrong family. God says, no, absolutely not. You are valuable because you are my daughter and I don't care where you're from. You're my son. Friends, the message of this book so powerfully and clearly in a world that wanted to push back was this, even if you're Naomi, even if you walked away, even if you've been living in the land of Moab, even if you've lost it all, if you come back to the Lord, there's always healing. And there's always redemption. And there's always hope. And that's what the barley harvest is all about. And over the next weeks, we're going to see how God redeems and infuses hope and value and purpose and meaning back into these two broken women's lives and how he can do the same for you and how he can do the same for me. So that, but that's next week as we go on to Ruth part two. So don't miss it. Amen? <laughs> Amen, let's pray. Father, this morning we stand together with this beautiful story, with this book that speaks into our world, that speaks into the dark, corrupt places that want to divide us, that speaks into this world's value system and says, no, God, we stand with you in that. We open our hearts and minds to it. We stand as a church, Lord, and we say, even those in this world that society says has no val- have no value, Lord, we stand with you and we say they are valuable. And God, our minds and our hearts even have a long way to go. We need you to work on us. We need you to remind us of our value and we feel insignificant and unworthy. But we also, Lord, need you to work on our hearts when we look at others and we do not see your value in them. So God, through this story and through this book over the next week, weeks, inf- infuse hope, infuse transformation, infuse new eyes and hearts and minds through which we can see your world and your people and your plans and your purposes, Lord, and remind us, God, there is always hope in you. That's our prayer, Jesus. We love you. We pray it in your name. Amen.